You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to Prof Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. In this podcast, we have Jane Newbold with us, who will take us through the practical issues and help us think through where we should be looking after residents who have a COVID-19 infection. You will recall from the previous podcast how we grouped residents into categories of yellow, green and red where green meant the person does not have an infection, yellow means that there was a suspicion of an infection and that needed to be resolved. And the red category, which we touched on previously, we'll now explore in detail. And the red category is for residents who have tested positive and have a COVID-19 infection. Jane, you've got a, a wealth of experience in aged care as a senior nurse. Can you just give us a little bit of background about your work experience? Thanks, Joe. Well, I've been working in the aged care sector for nearly 20 years now and coming up to nearly 40 years in the nursing sector. So I have worked in the aged care sector in both clinical and facility manager positions. But in addition to that, I actually worked for the Federal Department of Health and Ageing as a Commonwealth Nursing Officer. I also did my training as a quality assessor, so I did that for a wee while. And I also worked in a number of organisations as part of consultancy teams going into aged care. In addition to that, I started work about seven years ago with the Palliative Care Consortiums in Melbourne as an aged care project manager, working with the aged care facilities and doing education and support to look at ways of improving the provision of palliative care, where we have about 160 facilities and about 13,500 residents. That's a huge job to be doing and uh, an incredible amount of experience. I'm reassured that you're the right person to discuss these issues. We're up to the stage now of thinking through what do we do when a resident has a COVID-19 infection? I just want to start with the question about, let's imagine that there's a resident in one of your facilities that has COVID-19. Where do you think they should be looked after? Joe, I really think that for the benefit of not only the resident that's actually positive, but for the other residents and also for the staff, I would prefer that that care is provided off-site, away from the aged care facility. And that's only because I'm looking at the resourcing of that aged care facility and their ability. If you look at the outbreaks that we've seen, not only in Australia, but particularly overseas, where you're looking at a 20 to 50% loss of staffing through them contracting their disease and the spread. Once uh, one resident is positive, the spread to other residents is quite rapid. So I think from a safety perspective, being cared for off-site and preferably in a place that can provide appropriate care 
such as the acute sector, would be my preference. Do you mean that for just the residents that have a severe illness? I think the risk of transmission is so great with somebody who is positive being there because aged care facilities are not funded or designed or resourced like hospitals are. So you might have one person who's running between a number of residents and the fact that you're then imposing a really strict infection control management structure on top of that, which is essential and required to prevent transmission, you're looking at the risk of transmission and a breach in those infection control practices occurring quite easily. So from my perspective, anybody who is positive, whether they are presenting with mild, moderate or severe disease, that care should be provided off-site. The consequences of having an exposure that large is catastrophic. We're looking at very high death rates. We're looking at facilities not being able to staff and provide even basic care because they can't replace the staff that are off sick. We're also seeing too and hearing of staff that are reluctant to want to go and work in those facilities where somebody is COVID positive. So we're going to struggle with staffing. That's just the given. So just to explore the staffing issue, it's understandable they're reluctant. Does that translate into them turning up to work and being a little bit frightened or does that mean that they're not coming to work? I think it's a combination of both, Joe. I think the staff, in, in particular the care staff, are very, very frightened of this disease and are frightened of getting it themselves or of taking it home to their families. So that's one aspect of it, and that's how they're feeling without having someone who's positive in their facility. My experience of chatting to the staff and saying to them, what would happen if you had one, is a number of them just blatantly said, we're not coming to work. If they're stuck in that situation and maybe they haven't got enough protective equipment, maybe they're short on staff or staff are off sick and they're having to do try and do you know, twice the amount of work, I think they're just feeling scared that they're not sure what's going to happen. So it's a combination of both things. If I just go back to explore the question a little bit more of, if the majority of residents only have a mild illness, shouldn't we play our part and look after them in the facility and leave the hospitals for the younger people? Aged care just isn't resourced or designed to be able to limit or prevent that sort of transmission and that wildfire spread of this disease when it does get out of hand. And I understand there is a need to look at maybe the younger people or people that are healthier should have access, a priority access. It's not just about access to ventilators. It is not just about access to an emergency department. It's access to really good quality care, even if that is supportive symptomatic care as the person is dying, responsive care, good assessment. And I think every person who gets this disease has a right to that. My concern is that if aged care facilities are overwhelmed, maybe they won't be able to provide that level of comfort and supportive care. I know that in a lot of facilities with minimal numbers of registered nurses, how are they going to be assessing and evaluating these residents to identify if they're declining or deteriorating, as well as looking after another 80 or 90 residents in the facility? 
it's not practical, it's not appropriate. And I think we have to look at saying it's not just about the urgent care, it's also about taking a breath and thinking about what's important and good quality assessment, good quality symptom management is critical for every resident who has this disease regardless of age. Jane, could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by aged care uh, or residential aged care being unique? I think we need to understand the environment that aged care sits in and that it's not a hospital. It's not designed like a hospital. It's not built like a hospital. What we've got is a number of uh, fail aged people, often with some really complex medical history, so at very high risk of deteriorating and declining quite rapidly and a number of residents with conditions such as either mental health conditions or a diagnosis of dementia. And we're putting, you know, 30, 60, 90, 150, 200 under one roof. Usually these days, most residents have a single room, though there's still a number of places that have shared rooms. And what we're looking at is people that are living and cohabiting in an environment where they're sharing meals, food, drinks, that we have people entering other people's rooms and wandering in and touching things so that you can't constrain residents from exploring their environment and you don't want to do that. It's meant to be a home-like environment. So things like even the furnishings might not necessarily be appropriate from an infection control perspective. It's all those little things that add to the mix. But we're looking at places that have much less staffing, much less supervision of residents than compared to a place such as a hospital where you've got a higher level of more experienced staff. So the physical environment where we've got shared lounge areas, shared entertainment and activities, uh, shared dining rooms, And residents are encouraged to spend time with other residents and develop friendship groups and uh, participate in activities. So your risk of transmission is incredibly high. It's not like somebody was at home and only sharing their whole home with one other person. They have their small room and that's it. That's their space sort of thing. And then everything else is communal. Can you give us an indication about how many nurses we'd actually have in, in a facility on average? So if, if, for example, we had something like a 90, 95-bed facility, uh, you might have the clinical manager who's in charge. There might be one other uh, registered nurse on on, an, on a morning shift so that there would be sort of the two registered nurses. And often facilities might be divided in half. So if it's a 90-bed facility, that might be divided into two units you would probably have an enrolled nurse that works as well and that person would be responsible for administration of medications or doing any dressings or minor things that are needed with the resident. And then under that, the person providing the care, your personal care attendance. Now, there are no ratios, so I can't say for sure that every place would have this at a minimum. But you might have one carer to every six or seven residents, which would be a really well-staffed facility, but that might go up to eight, nine, ten on an AM shift. On an afternoon shift, then you're looking at significantly more. So there's different models 
every facility has a different approach or a different model. The consistency is not like a hospital where I know that I'm going to have a one to four, one to five or one to six ratio depending on where it is I'm working or what time of the day it is. It's very, very different. So there's no mandated minimums with staffing. It's very limited and it varies from place to place. It really does, unfortunately. So it's not consistent. Jane, thanks for covering that first situation where a person who has COVID-19 infection should be cohorted or moved to a different location so those that don't have the infection are protected. What do you say about establishing a second facility, still a residential aged care facility that just looks after COVID-19 infected patients or residents? Do you think that's a workable solution? I think that's probably the best way to go, Joe. is I think that having a different or a separate facility off-site would be the optimum model to look at. And if you looked at the outbreak we've experienced in Australia, it's not like you would have to have a lot of those facilities around. You might have something within each region that could accommodate if there was an outbreak at one or two facilities. The additional workload of having such tight infection control mechanisms in place, that we could look at doing something and looking at the aged care sector, staffing models, there's nothing stopping you having something like PCWs and ENs involved in working. You just might need more of them than you would have in a usual aged care facility. So I think that kind of model could work quite well. Do you have a sense of how much extra staff that you would need to look after a 30-bed facility with COVID-19 infected residents? I would be tempted to put something like a a registered nurse in charge of, you know, maybe 15 beds and have three or four workers that work with them of whether they're PCs or enrolled nurses. I think that could probably work quite well. So you might have a registered nurse that's in charge of, say, 15 to 20 beds and who's supervising what's going on and monitoring and responding and guiding the staff to do what they need to do. So I don't think that that it would be as expensive as setting up a natural ward in a hospital. I think it could be done more appropriately, particularly people with mild disease may not necessarily need as much one-on-one care. It could be done quite cost-effectively. Do you think that moderate disease could be looked after in a specialised facility or is that group needing to go to hospital? One of the things in my job and with what I do is teaching people how to identify decline and deterioration. And it's something that some facilities do particularly well because they know the residents. So that when something's a little bit different or strange, they know to investigate and follow up. Some facilities don't do that well. That's one of the biggest things that you would probably have issues with. So one is, yes, have registered nurses that are there that can do that assessment. The other is too, we need to make sure that there are staff that would be working in that facility that understood aged care because acute health trained nurses aren't specialists in aged care. So it's a matter of sharing those two resources of assessment and understanding what's usual for that particular person. 
What about the practicalities? Because people that have moderate disease uh, often might need additional intravenous fluids. They may need oxygen and they will need blood tests and x-rays done to check on their progress. Do you see that that's doable in aged care facility that's been set up just to look after people who are COVID positive? Most aged care facilities, in fact, very few could manage things like IV fluids and very few places do. Uh, I actually sent out a bit of a flyer to the facilities in my region a couple of weeks ago saying, check the basements and garages and see if you actually have got an IV pole around because a lot of places haven't even got an IV pole to hang a bag up. So they're not going to have that capacity to do that kind of acute stuff. You would need to have that set up in a new facility so that you could accommodate that. Oxygen, same thing. Everything's bottled, so we don't have piped oxygen in aged care. You probably would have one canister of oxygen for one bottle for emergency use. If we've got people on long-term oxygen, we tend to get an oxygen concentrator um, and use that for that person. So you're not going to have a huge supply or backlog of additional oxygen supplies if you need it. I now want to raise the question with you about who will be responsible for making the decisions about whether someone is deteriorating and may need end-of-life care, someone who's deteriorating and may benefit from going to hospital for further treatment. Because normally I would expect those decisions to be made by doctors. That's right. They're usually the decisions that are made by either the general practitioner, the resident's own GP, or in the event that they've referred to a residential in-reach team, it's the in-reach team that come out and make that decision. And if the decision is made for end-of-life or comfort care, then often there's a referral made to the community-based palliative care service providers. And different facilities have different relationships with different services, and that's different in every aspect, every part of Melbourne or even Victoria. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and say, how accessible will the GPs be? Some GPs have been fantastic and come in and still do at least a weekly review of residents. Others are doing more telehealth, which seems for them to be working quite well. And some GPs have actually said we're reluctant to come in at this stage. So it is the luck of the draw, really. You know, that's the thing with GPs. When they're great, they're fantastic. They really make such a difference. So, but I think they're being caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place at the moment as well. So that's certainly one thing. Access to consistent medical practitioners will be an issue. I, I want to just bring up the point now that the Minister for Aged Care uh, and it made an announcement that there would be uh, rapid response teams in a situation of an outbreak where medical expertise and nursing support would be provided. Do you have much information around that? You know, yes, there could be a rapid response team. What's the makeup of that team? Is it just one nurse that's coming in to provide support and assistance on infection control management issues? Is it someone that's going to come in and actually look after those 
COVID-19 positive residents and special them so that the general staff can continue caring for the rest of the residents in the facility? We don't know. And I think from my perspective, that's one of the biggest issues is the lack of knowledge and the fact that that hasn't been conveyed to the sector as well as it should have been. Is there other information that you would like to have at hand that would help with your planning? And if so, what would be that information and where, who do you think should be providing it? This is the thing, it's the coordination and communication about everything. It's fine and good to have an email address that you can send a request for personal protective equipment, but when the response is, well, if there's a significant outbreak, we'll be in contact. Well, what's a significant outbreak? And if I've got someone who's suspected, surely I should be doing everything within my power to protect my other residents and my staff as well. So access to information, access to equipment, a clear line of communication within each region rather than sort of sending emails off to Canberra or to wherever else I think is probably critical. I think the inReach teams are probably very well positioned to do that, but they need the resourcing to do that. I just want to now address the question about palliative care because people that have got very severe disease from COVID who also have heart trouble or lung trouble already um, will die no matter what is done for them. Where do you think is the best place to provide them with end-of-life care? This is where it gets quite difficult in that it would be ideal for people to stay in their home, i.e. the nursing home, and have the staff that they know looking after them if they're dying. The problem then is the risk of keeping them there is it puts the staff and other residents at risk. So they need to have appropriate care by someone who is skilled in assessment and can respond to whatever symptoms that person is having. Now, whether that's in the off-site COVID-19 positive nursing home or whether or not that's in an acute or subacute type facility, I think they're the decisions that we need to make. In particular, it's around that communication with family. This is a horrendous time where maybe the family can't come and visit. I think that supporting families and enabling them to have their final communication with their loved one is really important. Then looking at things like any bereavement or grief issues that the person may have, they're probably in in the best position to actually react and respond and support that person. We need to look at really good palliative care, but it may not be best if that's done on site at the aged care facility. It might be that that's best done in a COVID-19 positive site. All right. The reading I've done, the documents and conversations I've heard is that people have tended to pick one approach and they say that the residents are largely asymptomatic with mild disease so they don't need to move or they say that there's a high mortality rate so we really should just be concentrating on palliative care. And to me what seems to be forgotten is that middle group where there is moderate disease that needs hospital care. And so I don't see or I haven't seen a good balance that says we need to address these different situations. Is that 
your experience and, and what you've heard? Or Yeah, I think everyone is just a little bit overwhelmed and confused because everything is so new about this disease. When you look at the numbers and see that a number of them will recover quite well, then it's like, well, what happens with those ones that are in between? So that we recognise there will be some who have quite mild disease and will recover and come back to the facility if they're looked after off-site. And there'll be a number of our residents that will die as a result of this diagnosis. And there will be some that struggle. And maybe when they come back to us, they might not be as well or as strong as they were. So I think the industry gets that. But how do you determine that is, I think, the hard thing, is that making that decision about who's going to get access to what care I don't know who's going to be making that decision. And I think that's the thing that the, that the sector would like a little bit more input into. Jane, I just want to reflect with you about Australia's experience over the past two months since COVID essentially arrived in the country. Do you have any thoughts about what's worked well, what hasn't worked and what we need to do going forward in aged care and more broadly in the community? So I think from all crisis situations, there are great opportunities for reflection and change and development. So number one, that's the most important thing, I think, is just to acknowledge that. The other is the inconsistent information and advice that has come through. It just needed to be so much clearer. And even now we're getting the push to open up the doors of aged care and allow more visitors in. And that in and of itself can be problematic because if we start seeing community transmission erupt in aged care, I think we're going to really struggle with dealing with the outcome of that because we still haven't got a very clear pathway of how we're going to manage people in residential aged care. And if we're going to put the pressure onto the sector, we need to resource it significantly more than it's getting now. There needs to be really clear identification of the resources available and how they will be rolled out and implemented. But one of the things I think we need to look at is we need to improve the communication between state and federally funded healthcare. There needs to be things like a clinical support network. In an ideal world, we will build and grow subacute hospitals that are purely aged care focused and become hubs and specialties of aged care. And if we could do that down the track one day, I think we would find that that would work particularly well. But the other thing I just want to raise is we can't allow our frail aged to be considered collateral damage of the pandemic. And so we need to make sure that they have equity of access to all services that all citizens of this country would have. And it can't be less than because they live in a residential aged care facility. And I've got a bit of a fear that that's exactly what's happened in the rest of the world with catastrophic consequences. And I don't want that to be the case in this country. They're wise words and I'd be a fool to say anything different. Thanks very much, Jane, for your time and your insights. It's been incredibly valued to have someone with your level of experience. I guess shoot from the hip and tell us what's really happening out there. It's been a pleasure, Joe. Thank you.